Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning. That was kind of a half-hearted smattering over here, smattering over there. And I, I did hear one hola. Uh, so thank you for those representing our brothers and sisters in Christ who can speak Spanish. Um, all right. So the message today is going to be in Matthew chapter 28. But as you know, for the last couple of weeks, we haven't been just staying in one text. We've been bouncing all over the New Testament. So we are going to start in Matthew chapter 28, bounce all over the New Testament to see uh, what the scriptures talk about when it talks about the church in two particular ways. Um, before I go any further, I just want to say that there is no place more that I would rather be than here this morning with you worshiping our Father through the Son by His Spirit. There's no other place that I would rather be than here. And I hope that is true for you as well. And not simply because we have good musicians or not simply because I'm a phenomenal speaker. And not simply because Cassidy says, and everything, like 12 times when he's up here. And we can poke fun at him but because we're a family, and families gather together, they celebrate together, they worship together, they enjoy the things of God together. And today we're going to be learning in particular about two aspects of being the family of God, being a church. Uh, I've entitled uh, this series, The Church, A Family of Strangers, because that is essentially what we are, are we not? Um, we are strangers uh, of God until God adopts us into his family and, and allows us to gather in his church to be a member of his family through his son. And even though we don't look very similar, even though we don't talk very similar, we have a common faith in Jesus Christ that unites us. And we are a family. And today we're going to see two particular things about the church, of what, of what God does to bring his adopted children into his family, and then how he uh, permits or what he does for his family members to help them remember what is most valuable about being in this family, this family uh, of God. So we are going to see that the church today is a, a church in the New Testament sense. Aiming the clicker, pointing the clicker. There we go. A, a the church is a family who both adopts and remembers. A family who adopts and remembers. Uh, the way that the, the church reveals adoption is through the, the practice of baptism. The way that the church remembers what is most important about their fundamental identity as saved people is through the Lord's Supper. These are two things that Jesus instituted upon his church to continue to reflect their adoption of new members into the family and remember what is most important about being 
in this family. Now, before many of you know this, before I was serving here as, as a pastor, I served in, in student ministry for a number of years as an associate pastor at, at a church in the Chicago area. And uh, I, extreme, I enjoyed, loved serving in that church, and I love serving in student ministry because if you can minister to teenagers uh, during a very high-intensity, uh, very transient time in their life where they're making a lot of significant life decisions, and if you can minister effectively to teenagers, grown-ups are a piece of cake. Because grown-ups are the, have the same issues as teenagers, it just takes five to ten years to unpack them for adults, where it just takes a semester for a teenager to reveal what needs to be ministered to. Well, there's a family in our church uh, that came to our, that, that was in our church for a number of months. They had uh, three or four kids, at, three or four kids at the time, and uh, they, they came to our church for a number of months. And one Sunday morning, I noticed there was a brand new uh, person in their family. This is this is Bill, and this is Marquise that came next to him, uh, and he was just sitting with uh, the with the family and. Uh, they and I had known I'd, I'd known the family. And I know like okay, this person is new, and it turns out they were beginning the first stages of fostering Marquise as a seventh grader. Seventh graders don't usually get fostered, but this, as the story goes, uh, Bill and his wife Liz were on their way into the the DCFS, thinking about fostering and adoption. And as they were walking in, Marquise was just sitting there in the DCFS, and he just kind of looked at at. Bill and Liz, and as they unpacked, as they unpacked the process for what it takes to ad adopt or foster a child, they were like, what, what about that kid who is sitting out there? Like, oh, he, he's bounced around to a number of houses, um, but if you'd like to foster him and potentially put in the adoption, uh, go down that path, you, you, you can go for it. And so sure enough, in the, over the course of a few months, they brought him into the family. He stayed for a, a number of months. He, he stayed for a number of months in their house. And then after all that was said and done, after bouncing around to a number of different, a number of different homes, finally they were, he was in the home of Bill and Liz. And as a seventh grader, they stood before the state of Illinois and one of the judges and the judges pronounced over uh, the judges pronounced over Marquise, you are now officially adopted into this new family. Now, as you can tell from the picture, Mar Marquise looked much different than the, the rest of his family. But he was a full-fledged member with all of the rights and privileges of what it means to be a member of Bill and Liz's family. And as I was reflecting upon the message today and, and thinking about Marquise's story, well, Mar Marquise's, Mar Marquise's story, I, I remembered that that official pronouncement by the judge in saying, on the, the authority vested in me by the state of Illinois, I pronounce that you are now a member of this family. That outward symbol on the, the authority of the state of Illinois is very similar to what happens to a person when the church publicly baptizes somebody. The church has done its due diligence to uh, affirm the, the profession of faith that the person is making in Jesus Christ, that they are no longer following after their own sin, they're no longer following after their own uh, their, the pattern of this world, and they are no longer spiritual 
orphans, but they desire to be in a new family by the grace of God. And on the basis of that profession of faith, the church baptizes the person in the the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The doubt is officially removed as to whether this person is a spiritual orphan or not. Their identity is revealed to the world through a public profession of faith. When a person is baptized, they are declaring to the world that the, they are declaring to the world and the church is affirming this person is now a spirit, spiritually adopted into the family of God. We, we baptize those who have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus himself has given authority to his disciples to do such a thing. Just as the judge is delegated with authority from the state of Illinois to do such things on the behalf of the state, the, the church on, and the disciples on behalf of Jesus have been given the authority to baptize. I'll go to straight to the text that we already read. Jesus says this at the end of Matthew. Oh, one slide before. Oh, keep keep going to the left. Nope. Yeah, th- there we go. Nope, that one. Previous one. It's like doing the hokey pokey. You put your right slide in. You put your right slide out. All authority. That's the one. Keep it there. Not, now you guys are just messing with me. <laughs> Jesus says this. As you all know the passage, most of you, I should say, know the passage. This is after Jesus has died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, and he says these words to his disciples who have seen him in his resurrected glory. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is such a massive statement of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think about that. Every sphere of life, Jesus is saying, I have authority over it. The state says, I have authority to adopt, to to put this child in this family through adoption. Jesus says, I have authority to do whatever I want in whatever sphere I want. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is all a preface for where he's going. This is all an encouragement to truth that he is sovereign over all things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now he's going to give an instruction to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make peace between warring countries to make sure that their skirmishes, their skirmishes are flattened. Go, therefore, and ensure that all people are able to do whatever they please, whenever they please, or desire to do it. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and bake bread because it's delicious. He could say anything because he has all authority. And he could commission his disciples to do whatever he desired for them to do. So on the authority of Jesus that he says he has all of the authority to do whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, this, the disciples, this is what you are supposed to do. This is the command that you are commissioned to go therefore and do in light of my sovereignty over all things. 
He could have said anything at this point, but he chooses this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. Now, the, the disciples at this point couldn't say, but Jesus, we're only a, a ragtag group of 120 people. We don't know the language. We don't have enough money. Our pets' heads are falling off. There's no possible way that we could do this. Jesus goes, well, reference back to my first sentence. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus says that so they can have zero excuses for what they are supposed to do. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That includes authority over all of these nations, all of these ethne, these people groups. Make disciples of every people group on the planet, Jesus tells his disciples. His disciples. Could you imagine? Could you imagine in their minds all of the excuses running through their, their minds? But we're not educated. But we don't have enough money. But we don't know the language. But those barbarians in the north, they are really rough. Those Romans are brutal. Jesus, they just crucified you. What would Jesus respond? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go do what I tell you. Make disciples of all of the nations. So they go and they begin making disciples. But how are they to signify and show that, that a person has become a disciple. When a person goes from following whatever they desire, from being a spiritually a spiritual orphan into the family of God, how are they going to know, that, how is the world going to know that they are no longer a, a follower of false gods, they're no longer a follower of, for, of, of idols or, or other things, how are they going to know that they are no longer following the kingdom of darkness and now that they are following Jesus and the kingdom of light, how are they going to know publicly that they have been made a disciple on the authority of Jesus? How are they going to know? Next slide. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to be brought into the family of God so that the people can say to God, God, you are my father because of the work of your son and through the power of your spirit, I am now adopted into this new, brand new family of God called the church in obedience to Jesus' command to his disciples, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is all a work of God. Yes, Jesus has the authority to, to commission the disciples. And yes, the commission gives, goes to the disciples to go and preach the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to live their lives in such a way that the gospel is proclaimed from their life. Yes, they do that work. But in the midst of all of their work, they realize that all of it is because of the work of God. And it's God's spirit that brings a person from darkness to light. God's spirit that brings an orphan into the family of God. John puts it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, talking of Christ, 
In the first 11 verses, is talking about how Jesus is the Word made flesh, and he went to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. You're not the Messiah that we want. His own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, there are many that were just like, no, we, we love being orphans. We love being spiritual orphans. We don't want a family. We don't want the family of God. But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, verse 13. God, by the power of his spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel in his son, makes disciples of all of the nations. And you are one of those nations. You are one of those people groups that the gospel has penetrated and a church has been planted and disciples are now being made. And Jesus says, as you go, continue to be going, baptizing, to reveal to the world that they are no longer spiritual orphans, but they have been brought and welcomed into the family of God. Pastor Glenn already read this uh, portion of this passage, but the, the Apostle Paul takes this spiritual truth in this particular direction in the opening in his book of the, to the, his letter to the church in Ephesus. He writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I believe I put the second half of verse 4 and verse 5 on there. He, say, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Happy is God. Blessed be, happy am I because of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because I'm in Christ, because I'm in him, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because my home is with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to be the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. God the Father has a plan to adopt sons and daughters from every people group on planet Earth. And he's given the church the authority to go into every people group on the planet and make disciples. And once disciples are made, they are baptized. But they are not just left as baptized and then told to do whatever they want. He continues, Jesus continues the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 19 or chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, or just chapter, or verse 20, he says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, there was another family in our, our previous church that um, uh, they had, they were um, a husband and a wife, and they had four girls. All four of the girls were varsity state-level runners. They would go on family runs together. I know, it's sickening to most of us, isn't it? <laughs> but you, when you would see them, you would know, oh, that's from that family. 
because they bear the family resemblance. When a person is brought into the family of God, they are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are taught then everything that Jesus has commanded his disciples to observe and to obey. And they begin to bear the family resemblance. And it has nothing to do with anything physical. and has everything to do with what, where we are spiritually. It has everything to do with how we love one another, how we care for one another, how we are concerned for the burdens of others, how we treat one another, we, how we bear the family resemblance of God. Now imagine that an orphan is just dropped off at your doorstep one day. The doorbell rings, and you open it up, and there is just a kid. No information. He doesn't know, he or she, kid doesn't know anything about their family. There isn't a person in this room that would just shut the door and run away. At least none here who would admit it. We would all, we would all say to ourselves, okay, we, we, it's going to be difficult, but we can probably take in one child. It's going to be hard. I'm going to have to adjust some things, but this child is literally dropped off on my doorstep and there's no other place for this child to go. Yeah, they can come into our household. Now imagine a hundred children are dropped off at your doorstep. None of us would have the capacity here to take in a hundred children. And if you do, there's so many things running through my mind. I'll just pause there. But none of us would be able to have that type of capacity. What would we need to do? We certainly wouldn't want to shut the door and just go on with our life. Go to the, go to the next door, please. We would need to organize. We would need to plan. We would need to get on the phone. We would need to start making some calls. We wouldn't want any of these children to be abandoned. To left to fend for themselves, would we? We would want every single one of the hundred to be involved in loving families, to be cared for, to grow into healthy adults. So what it would mean is that we would need to train more people, more households to bring in more orphans, would it not? We would need to be collaborating and resourcing and, and trying to help one another to understand, like, how are we going to care for these 100 orphans? We're not just going to just let them go. They're dropped off on our doorstep. They're our responsibility. Brothers and sisters, this is God's plan for the church. When God looks at the world outside of his son in his church, they're all spiritually orphans and they've been dropped at the church's doorstep. And we must see our church as a spiritual orphanage. We must see ourselves as people who are willing to adopt as many people that God brings to us, as many people that are dropped off on our doorstep, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they, how they talk, regardless of their background. They're, if they're dropped on our doorstep, if they come into a worship gathering, we want to encourage them to become a member of the family of God. And yes, it's all on God to do the work of, by his spirit, to adopt them into our family. But we need to have the desire to say, yes, all that come, we desire to bring into our family. 
which means we should take baptism seriously. We should take baptism as a public declaration that this is now a member of the family. This is an orphan who has now been brought into God's family. We have a process that starts early in the fall that goes over a number of weeks to, to say, hey, baptism Sunday's coming. Hey, we want to reveal to the world all those who, are being, who have been adopted into God's family. We want to show and display that publicly. The process is overseen by our pastors and shepherds. We have a, just, just, as, just to ensure that the, the profession is genuine, as genuine as we can tell, that this person has faith in Jesus Christ, that they have made the profession, that God's Spirit has done a work in their heart to ensure that. We have a process that goes through that. And then, and then uh, we have this huge celebration where as many as God has brought to us, are celebrated and baptized. But by God's grace, we hope we don't just say, all right, nice dunk, and we'll see you later. We assimilate them into the family so that they bear the family resemblance, not in how we look or what we talk or our our manner of speech, but in how we love one another and how we love God and love his scripture and love his word. If you are someone here who has yet to believe in Christ or yet to be baptized, today is a day that you make a decision to follow Jesus. Like, you might be here enjoying some of what our family is doing. This is family business on Sunday morning. This is a family meeting, a family gathering. You might be here and you might be benefiting from it in some part of a way, but if you haven't made a, a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you're still an orphan. You haven't found a spiritual home to be loved and nurtured and cared for. And yes, we'll, we'll, we'll try to resemble Jesus's love for you, but it's him that is bringing you to himself so that you can be a member of his family. Our next baptism service is in November. Begin thinking and praying about you revealing to the world that you are in Christ. The way we baptize is by immersion. We believe that's the most faithful way to the scripture because the the word baptism is from the Greek word baptizo that that means to submerge or to uh, immerse or to dip. And it's this, this beautiful spiritual picture of what Christ does in his death for our sin. Just as he died on the cross and was buried for three days in the tomb, so also we baptize people under the water you know I'm going to say the joke. We baptize them under the water for three days. I'm just kidding. We're like three milliseconds. And then we raise them up just as Christ was raised from the dead and walked out of the tomb and, and was raised from the dead. So also the person is raised from the water to reveal the newness of life. Jesus ordained, he commanded that baptism be this public adoption declaration of the family of God. The the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ, has authority. The disciples of Jesus have the authority to baptize, to reveal to the world that this this is a brother, this is a sister. But that's not the only thing that Christ commands his church to observe or to remember or to continue to practice. Uh, The other ordinance that Jesus commands his church to practice is uh, 
is the institution of the Lord's Supper or communion. In the, the last supper, the final meal that Jesus had with his disciples before his crucifixion, he ordained this. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and Matthew, in, in the gospel according to Matthew, in verse 26, he, Matthew writes this. Now, as they were eating, this last supper, this Passover meal, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Now, just put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. They're having this serious uh, Passover meal. They're having this serious Lord's Supper, this gathering. He's teaching them a whole host of things. And then he pulls out the bread, and, and all the disciples are gathered around. He rips off some of the bread and says, take and eat. This is my body. Now, if this were to happen in a pastoral staff meeting, most likely, um, one in the disciples would have said, yeah, Jesus, and this and taking a sandal and said, this is my body because it stinks. <laughs> I thought that joke was going to land so much better. But Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. Now, they weren't entirely clued into why Jesus was saying this, because he hadn't died on the cross yet. But then he continues and said, then he took the cup, verse 27, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now they're clued in. Okay. Forgiveness of sins, sacrificial system, mosaic law, covenant. This wine is now representing my blood that is going to be poured out. Jesus, you're going to die. And he commands the disciples to drink from the cup to remember later on after he has been crucified to remember that this was what it was going to cost him to forgive their sins. Now, in Matthew's account, he also adds a line at the end about partaking in this meal. He says in verse uh, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now the disciples are clued in. Okay, so you're going to die. You're going to come back. And then everything is going to be restored and your, the kingdom is going to be restored and we're going to eat and drink and finally everything is going to happen. We, we know they were probably thinking along these lines because after he dies and raises from the dead and in the book of Acts in chapter 1, uh, Jesus is talking to them about the kingdom of God and the, disciples, and the disciples ask him specifically, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the disciples, and then Jesus tells them, Hey, buddies, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons that my father has fixed by the own, his own authority. Could be 40 years, could be 400 years, could be four centuries. It's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. It's for you to baptize 
make disciples and remember the sacrifice that I have done for you. So during the entirety of this church age, before the return of Christ, and he restores the fullness of the kingdom, and Jesus himself drinks again with us in his kingdom. His church is called to remember his sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is this powerful expression of unity. That all of the people gather together in the church. It's a big family meal. Everybody eats of the same bread, drinks of the same cup. And it's this expression of unity that we are one body. Just as the loaf is one piece of bread and we uh, eat from that one loaf, so also we, uh, his people, are one and united to him. Paul writes instructions about it and the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, and he needed to write instructions of it because the church had completely failed in instituting the Lord's Supper and practicing the Lord's Supper, and it was causing divisions because they were just treating it like a, a normal party. So he writes this rather strong, some rather strong words in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. He says this to the church in Corinth, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, so when you gather for church, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Man, I would hate to be one of the elders in that particular church. The apostles like, what you're doing is actually detrimental to the kingdom of God. It's for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together at church, I hear that there's divisions among you. That, that should stop, pause us in our tracks right there and say, Paul has a vision of the church that it's one body. That if you're gathering together as the church, it's a unified entity. That there are no, there's no room for divisiveness or divisions within the church. And I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, the, the divisiveness only ensures that the one true church will emerge. Verse 20, and when you come, to, come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. Also, it's, it's interesting here that Paul's almost signaling like, if you're coming together for worship, you should probably be doing the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. Nice, got here first, brought my Big Mac and fries, and I'm going to chow down with just me and my, my small group of friends. One goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Oh, sorry, you're a poor worker. You can't get here early like us rich people who can afford the meal. Sorry, you're going to have to wake up earlier and work harder in order to be a part of our church. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. It's party time. Verse 22. What? What? I love it with an exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They were factionalizing according to their classes. The wealthy people could get there early, drink a lot, eat as much as they want and get drunk. The, the, the poorer people who had to work during the day couldn't get there till later and all the food was gone by the time that they got there. And they're calling it, let's get together for the Lord's Supper. This is going to be great. 
Paul says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I shall not. The, the social system that was, that was evident in the world has now manifesting itself in the church to where they were cutting people off, genuine believers in Jesus Christ, cutting them off from participating in what they were calling the Lord's Supper. He's saying, that's not the Lord's Supper. And then he goes into the specific instructions that we do almost every month when we practice the Lord's Supper here. For what I have received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. That on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The, the classic instructions. But he needed to be so clear in that because they were messing it up so much because they were so divided. Is Christ divided? No. Neither should his church be when they are partaking of the Lord's Supper. Even if you continue along in that line of reasoning that he is so clearly explaining, then the judgment that he talks about in the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the second half when he says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body. What are we as the church? The body of Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. What should be examined? Hey, do I have a beef against somebody else in the church? Is there a division or a faction arising within the church where we're separating ourselves from the, the direction of where the rest of the church is going and, and what else is happening? I think what Paul is getting at in, the, the, in his intention is saying, like drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner is breaching the unity of the church that God desires to have with his people. That's why many of you, verse 30, are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, had genuine, pure, right relationships with one another, and right relationships with God, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, verse 34, wait for one another. Can you see? <laughs> wait for one another. Make sure that you're all able to gather. Don't go about hurrying to, to get it done individually or to do it in a different way than everybody else. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. It's not for getting full. It's for remembering Christ's sacrifice for his church that unifies them. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but about would it not be for judgment? This is the reason we don't do remote communion. Like, we, we don't offer instructions to those who are at home how to participate in the Lord's Supper with us, even though they're not here. We can't control who is watching online. Hey, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're, we're thankful that you're able to participate in worship, uh, worship music and hearing the preaching of the word and, and seeing what's, what's happening. But when it comes time to do the Lord's Supper, we can't ensure that you have the same elements that we have. We can't ensure that we are administering the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner to you who are home because you're not here present with us. 
And so it's why we cut the stream at that point. Because we wouldn't be partaking in the Lord's Supper in a way that honors Christ and and is a revealing of the unity of the body that exists when we are supposed to be taking it together. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a shut-in or if you you can't make it to an in-person service that we're just not going to care for you. No, we're going to bring the church to you. We're going to send people, pastors, shepherds, people who love you, care for you, and we'll, in your home, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper as a body together. I love Thanksgiving. Who loves Thanksgiving? Okay, yeah, let's, there's like five people who are willing to raise their hands. But if you don't love Thanksgiving, you're not an American. Let me just go ahead and say it flat out. Uh, I, I love Thanksgiving. It's just this huge meal that we celebrate our thankfulness just for being alive and just the blessing of, of living another year. Wouldn't it be tragic if you were invited to a Thanksgiving meal? Like, hey, come over. Or, hey, would you join us for Thanksgiving? And you knock on the door. You have like your side of mashed potatoes that you were tasked with bringing to share for everybody. You knock on the door and the host is in their pajamas like, oh no, this is an online Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, what? That's not Thanksgiving. What are you talking about? Online Thanksgiving. Like, yeah, you can maybe talk while you're eating your own meals in your own homes. You might be communicating, but that's not Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, you bring something to somebody's house and you share a meal together. Everybody is eating the same meal and sharing the same germs and, and enjoying the, the, the presence of one another in the Thanksgiving meal. The entire point of the Thanksgiving meal is to come together and be thankful together. Thanksgiving can't be enjoyed remotely. It should involve everybody who's physically present. Similarly, the Lord's Supper helps us remember what's most important about our church. We don't exist if there's no cross. We're not here if there's no Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. There's no forgiveness if there's no cross. And when we gather, we're gathered to remember that and the Bread symbolizes his broken body. The, the cup symbolizes the blood that he poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. And it causes us to examine ourselves before God and examine ourselves before one another. And it causes us to be quick to reconcile with one another where we have been offensive. It causes us to be quick to forgive others where they have offended us because that's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's so sad that there are many Christians who have not participated in the Lord's Supper for probably over two years now in a genuine way because of worshiping exclusively online. I'm not knocking the necessity of doing it for a time period. But let us never substitute what should be temporary and supplemental for what is substantive and real. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us today, I encourage you to turn from your sin, to turn away from your sin, to embrace Christ and his sacrifice for you so that you can be welcomed into the, the family of God as an adopted son or daughter, as a member of 
our spiritual family, and you can regularly feast on the grace of God that is revealed to us tangibly in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for adopting us as son, your sons and your daughters. God, I thank you for your word and your work. God, I, I praise you that, uh, as the song said, I was an orphan, lost at the fall, running away from you, but by your grace you came and you've adopted me into your family, adopted us into your family. Help us live out that reality of being a member, an adopted member of your family. Help us to cherish the fact that we get to gather together to participate in the Lord's Supper, to remember what is most valuable about our family, the fact that you have forgiven our sin and brought us to yourself through the cross. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to be tr a true manifestation of your church in all of the glory that you have called us into. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.